What's up, guys? Welcome to the channel. Um, this is episode 55. We got Wolfgang back on the podcast, which is radical. Hello, everybody. <laughs> so I, I can explain. I can explain. All right, guys. Welcome back to episode 55. Um, we've got an amazing guest on, Frank Turk. He's been on an episode previous. So if you want to kind of know his backstory, is kind of, I guess we could call it your testimony. We talked about all that in the previous episode with him but this episode um we've got a lot of awesome q a for you um and you'll have to forgive my voice i have a bit of a cold so <laughs> it's a bit strange but um i think we just want to start out with some some recent of events that have kind of been going on um so i don't really know you, your opinion and even if you want to talk about this frank but um like the whole roe v wade um situation and abortion and all that kind of stuff we haven't talked about that on the podcast yet so i'm wondering if you'd be interested in kind of giving us your thoughts on that and maybe some biblical insight yeah, there, on that kind of stuff there's a lot to say on that in fact i'm about to do a podcast on the i don't have enough faith to be an atheist podcast about that but uh number one roe v wade was decided in 1973 and in it 11 justices discovered a right to an abortion in the constitution that does not exist there's nothing in the Constitution about abortion. There's nothing in the Constitution about babies. There's nothing in the Constitution about viability. So they basically invented a right to abortion when they decided that case almost 50 years ago. Now you say, well, who cares? What does it matter if they invent it? Well, what matters is, is that if you have unelected people on a judiciary who make up their own laws, then the people no longer govern themselves. We are governed by what is called an oligarchy, where you've got these elites who have just been put in place, unelected people deciding what uh, the rest of us can and can't do. So the law or the opinion Roe v. Wade was decided improperly from the beginning. There never has been a right to an abortion in the Constitution. Now, if people want to have a right to an abortion, what they can do is they can go through the amendment process in the Constitution, which is why the amendment process is there, and they could add a right to the Constitution. And that's the proper way of doing it. Now, the problem with doing that is it takes a lot of people to agree with you. You got to get like two thirds of the Congress and you got to get three quarters of the states. It's a big high bar, but that's the proper way to add a right to the United States Constitution, not to have some unelected group of people say, oh yeah, we're just gonna put that in right there, okay? And when they decided Roe v. Wade, in the opinion, the guy who wrote it was a guy by the name of Justice Harry Blackman. He said right there in the opinion, we need not resolve the difficult question of when life begins. And when I read that, I went, are you kidding me? Yeah, it seems like what that's if the whole an point. unborn child is a human being? How can you say it's OK to kill him if you're not going to discover whether or not that is a human being? And if there's any doubt as to whether or not it's a human being, you should always side on the on the right to life. Mm -hmm. I mean, if if you're trying to get into your house one night and your your dad doesn't know whether it's you or a burglar, should he just shoot? and ask questions later? Or should he positively identify that it's you coming through the door and not some thief, yeah. right? And an argument. He would positively identify it was you before he shot, right? Mm -hmm. Or it was a thief before he shot. Yeah, maybe he would shoot you if it was you too, who knows? Anyway, <laughs> yeah. um, the point here is, is that 
this was the right decision that occurred just last week when they overturned Roe versus Wade, because what the justices were saying is, look, our job is to properly interpret the Constitution. And this right, so-called right, has never been in the Constitution. It shouldn't have been there anyway. And so now it's going to go back to the state. So every state, through its elected representatives, will decide whether or not abortion should go forward or not. That's the way our, our republic works and should work. So it was the right decision. And of course, I believe, and I think science shows, I think the evidence shows, I think natural law shows, I think the Bible shows that an unborn child is a human being and should not be killed. Mm -hmm. So that's that's my five minutes on it, but I'm gonna spend a lot more time on it on the I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist podcast this week. Okay. I was going to ask just one thing, which is like, what do you, what is your opinion exactly on Christians who support abortion and things like that? Well, I think Christians who support abortion are probably misinformed. They don't know what abortion is. Uh, anybody who says, I think abortion is a right that people ought to have. I just, I say, I just need you to watch this one minute video. And there's a video on caseforlife.com caseforlife.com, all one word. And it's only a minute and seven seconds. There's a warning on the front of it. You'll see it right there. If you click on that video and watch that one minute video, it'll show you abortions in all three trimesters of pregnancy. After you looked at, look at that, if you still think abortion is a right, I question whether or not you have a conscience. Because after you see that, you're going to go, yeah, this is a human being that ought not be killed. Yeah. So I can understand why people think there's a right to an abortion because they haven't thought it through or they don't really know what goes on in an abortion. But once you see the evidence and you still think abortion's OK, I question I question whether or not you have a conscience, whether you're a Christian or not. Mm -hmm. You don't need to be a Christian to be against abortion, just like you don't need to be a Christian to be against murder. Right. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. <laughs> once you know it's an innocent human being you ought not kill it. Awesome. I had a question for you as well, and this is kind of more biblically related. Um, so there's there's obviously in the Bible, it's pretty clearly pro-life, um, in my opinion at least, and I think uh, all of ours. But there's there's a passage in Numbers 520 um, where it talks mm -hmm. about, um, it's kind of back in the law situation. I don't know if you want me to read that or not, or if you already know what I'm talking about, but it's pretty much. Yeah. Um, I, I'd love to get some clarity on that verse. Um, it's because there's, it, I guess there's some sort of people have mixed feelings and signals on that. So it'd be awesome to get your opinion yeah, on that. A, a couple of things. Why don't you just read the, I'll just set it up and then you can read the, uh, like say from verse 20 to verse 22. What's going on here is a test in the Old Testament for uh, a man who suspects his wife has committed adultery and she drinks this mixture and then this happens. So go ahead. Why don't you just read that there, Wolfgang, that those uh, three or four verses there. Um, and and what, what uh, in fact, what uh, what version of the Bible are you reading? Um, I got the ESV pulled up. Yeah, I do, too. All right. Read, read the ESV. What does it say? Go ahead. Go ahead, Luke. But if you have gone astray, though you are under your husband's authority, and if you have defiled yourself and some man other than your husband has lain with you, then let the priest make the woman take the oath of the curse and say to the woman, the Lord make you a curse and the oath among your people. When the Lord makes your thigh fall away from your body, swell. 
May this water that brings the curse pass into your bowels and make your womb swell and your thigh fall away. And then the woman shall say, Amen, Amen. Then the priest shall write these curses in a book and wash them into the water of bitterness. And he shall make the woman drink the water and of bitterness that brings the curse, and the water that brings the curse shall enter into her and cause bitter pain. And the priest shall take the grain offering of jealousy out of the woman's hand and shall wave the grain offering before the Lord and bring it to the altar. Uh, Shall I stop there? Should we keep reading? Yeah, that's fine. We're getting the idea. Basically, if you keep reading, it it, it talks about the fact that, um, well, the last verse, last couple of verses say, if she's guilty, uh, her abdomen will swell and her thigh will waste away and the women will become a curse among her people. But if the woman has not defiled herself, in other words, she's innocent of this and is clean, she will then be free and conceive children. Now, this is an odd passage to say the least. It's in Numbers. It's when the Israelites are are, are basically wandering through the uh, the wilderness and that before they get into the promised land, before they get into Israel. And it seems like what this is, is a, a device to discover whether or not a woman is guilty of adultery and it it's left in the hands of God. If she drinks this and her stomach swells uh, and her thigh falls away, whatever that means, we don't even know what that means. Some say it means that she miscarries. Some say it means she's just barren. Uh, there's different interpretations of what this phrase, her thigh falls away means. But in any event, if that happens, then she's guilty. If it doesn't happen, then she's innocent. And this, uh, my co-author, Dr. Norman Geiser, wrote about this in a book called The Big Book of Bible Difficulty, says that this appears to be a psychosomatic test. What's a psychosomatic test? Uh, If this woman took this potion, even though it's an inert potion, and she really was guilty, it would cause psychosomatically this problem either that or God would cause it directly in her body. If she wasn't guilty, then psychosomatically she would not be triggered to have this, have this result caused in her and she would be seemed, uh, deemed innocent. Now, that bears a little bit of explanation. Psychosomatic uh, cures or events are one of the six different types of unusual events. Uh, we cover this all in the book, I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. A psychosomatic a uh, situation is when you th- you're thinking about something gives you some sort of physical effect. Like, for example, Norman Geiser, my co-author, once had this really bad allergy to flowers. And uh, he would like well up and start sneezing. And, you know, he couldn't be around a lot of flowers. He was actually taking allergy medication. And one day he went into a church to preach and he got there early and he went up to the podium. It was a traditional church with a, a lectern, and there were flowers all around this lectern. And he was setting his Bible up there before the service. And there was an elder standing in the in the audience there. And he said, as soon as Geister saw the flowers, he started to well up and sneeze. And he said to the elder, he said, hey, you're going to have to move these flowers. Otherwise, I won't be able to preach. And the elder looked at him and said, they're plastic. And Geister said to himself, man, you just sneezed at plastic flowers. That allergy has to be in your head. Mm -hmm. And it was. It was psychosomatic. 
he threw his allergy medicine away and never had a problem again. Now, this is not to say that everyone's allergy is psychosomatic. It's not. But in Geisler's case, it was. Sometimes you can have a psychosomatic uh, issue where you, what you think about actually causes a physical result in your body. And it appears that this numbers test is one of those things that neither God causes it directly if she's guilty or if she's not guilty, she doesn't have this effect and she's deemed innocent because she knows she's not guilty. So that could be the reason that this numbers five passage is in there. And isn't it interesting that when you get to the end of numbers five, where uh, if she's if she's guilty, uh, it, it'll just tell her she's guilty, but it doesn't say she gets the death penalty. And I wonder why that is. I don't know the answer to that, but adultery was considered a capital crime in the theocracy of, of Israel. But here she doesn't get the death penalty. She just seems to be put out of uh, the camp there or put out of the fellowship there. Mm-hmm. Um, now, suppose this means miscarry. Suppose she's pregnant and she miscarries the child and people will go, you see, God's for abortion. No, he's not. See, people, what, if, if I say to you, let's not play God, what does that mean? I say to you, let's not play God. What does that mean? It means do don't think? do the things that God should only have the power to do. Exactly. Like if if I say we ought not play God, it means that we ought not take uh, the role that God takes in certain situations. God has the right to take life. We don't. Right. If God decides that somebody needs to die because it's judgment. OK, well, that's judgment. This would be judgment on this woman if in fact she did commit adultery. And if God decided, like he decided with David's child he had with Bathsheba, that the, that the baby would die, that's God's prerogative. If God decides that somebody dies, he can do that. We don't have that authority. The only time we have the authority to take someone's life is in a just war, self-defense, or capital punishment in, you know, from a just government. Those are the three reasons we have the ability or the three uh, justifications we have to take life. That's but awesome. uh, God has the right to take life anytime he wants. Look, if Christianity is true, and it is, then people don't die, they just change location, right? They go from this life to the next life, and it's up to God when that happens. We don't have the right to decide when that happens, except under those three circumstances, but God certainly does. So if God decides to kill, like, like he decided to kill the whole generation of Noah, does that give us the right to kill our entire generation because God does it? Yeah. No. So these people that cite these passages from the Old Testament, and some of them are obscure passages like this. And, and by the way, this kind of thing only applied to ancient Israel. It doesn't apply to us today. When they cite this, they don't know enough about the Bible or about logic <laughs> to say, well, if God does it, it must be OK for us. Yeah. You know, if God floods the world, does that give us the right to flood the world? Yeah, obviously not. No, yeah. of course. Awesome. And I, I love what you said on like um, us p- trying to play God. And I think mm-hmm. I, I learned this recently, like the first sin, this is just my opinion. I'm not sure. I'd love to hear insight on this. The first sin wasn't Eve essentially like taking the apple. Well, it was, but to go more deep on that, it was like man choosing to decide what's good. And I think that's really where it boils down to if God decides what's good. But the problem is when, the sin is when we decide what's good. Um, so I, I wonder if you kind of agree with that. 
Yeah, when we decide that whatever God said, we're going to go in the other direction, mm-hmm. that would be obviously sinful because if God is God and it's the standard of goodness, righteousness, and justice, and he's created us, then first of all, he is the standard of goodness. And secondly, he has authority over us. And if we decide we want to go our own way, we can, but there's going to be consequences. Yeah. Right. I mean, there's going to be consequences. Yeah. Awesome. Um, I think what he's, <clears throat> excuse me. I think what he's trying to say is um, in the Old Testament, like the first translations of it is um, every time God finished a day of creation, he would, he would deem it good or use the word tov in Hebrew. And the first time the word tov is used and uttered from like not God's mouth is when Eve sees the tree and she, she deems mm. it tov. And that's what I think he's trying to say would be like the first sin. Yeah. Well, I think he still answered it yeah. clearly, but yeah, it's, it was pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Um, so I noticed think- by the way that there are two trees in the garden, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. There is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree, tree of, of life. life. And obviously we disobey the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then when you get to revelation, one of those trees is still there. What's the tree that's still there? The tree of life. Yep, by the river. And what we seem to sometimes forget is there's a tree in the middle of those, uh, of Genesis and Revelation. And the tree in the middle is the tree upon which Jesus was hung. The cross, yeah. Because he was hung on a tree, according to Paul in Galatians chapter 3. Jesus is hung on a tree to take the sin that we committed because we sinned at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And for us to get back to the tree of life, he's got to be hung on the tree of the knowledge or hung on his own tree because we sinned at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's why we have access to the tree of life because he's hung on a tree right in the, right in the middle of time. That's amazing. I've never thought of that. that that's, that's really cool. Yeah, it's very symmetrical. If you think about it, you yeah. gotta, you know, it starts in a garden, ends in a garden. Right. That's really cool. Starts with a wedding, ends with a wedding. Yeah. Um, Well, I don't know about you guys. Should we start with the Q&A, you think? There's a lot of questions, so. Yeah, I mean, if Frank doesn't want to say anything else on this, yeah, we can start with the Q&A. Perfect. Um, Do you have them pulled up or should I? I have them pulled up as well, but which one? Do you want to start with one? I'll I'll start, yeah. Um, So this this first one's a compliment from one of our listeners. Um, So reading one of your books currently, just a big thank you. there's stuff I never thought about on my own. Um, but then kind of going off that as well is like, is there a book that you've written or that you know of that you would recommend to somebody, um, let's say that's fallen from the faith that did claim they knew God, but that fallen away? Is there a certain book or a thing you would recommend for that well, person it, to read? It really depends on what their attitude is. You know, I always like to ask people, if Christianity were true, would you become a Christian? Mm-hmm. And uh, if they hesitate or say, no, it doesn't matter what book you give them. They're not interested. They don't want God to exist because they want to be God of their own lives. Yeah. So I'd really have to figure out, uh, try and diagnose where the person's coming from. So if you could ask that person the question, if Christianity were true, would you become a Christian? Or if Jesus rose from the dead, would you follow him and see how they respond? Yeah. If they respond, of course. Well, then any good apologetics book might do. Maybe I don't have enough faith to be an atheist or maybe mere Christianity or um, a case for Christ or, you know, any one of a number of books you could get. And it would be good to go through the book with them in order to answer any questions and to have a a discussion as you go. But a lot of people will ask, you know, what book would you give to somebody who's an atheist? Well, maybe none because they're not interested. Yeah. I mean, Many people are looking for God like a criminal is looking for a cop, right? Yeah. They're, they're not interested. 
Yeah. So you got to diagnose where people are coming from first. And if they've been hurt by the church, that's a whole nother thing. One thing you can say to somebody who's been hurt by the church is to say, well, first of all, we're sorry. You know, that's it's evil when people treat people poorly. Uh, but the other thing you can ask is if somebody plays Beethoven poorly, who do you blame? Right? You don't Beethoven. blame Beethoven. No. Oh, right? You blame yeah. you blame the player. So if somebody plays Christ poorly, who do you blame? You don't blame Christ. You play the person playing Christ. Yeah. And so, yeah, you you can blame all of us for acting immorally. Mm-hmm. Of course, if we were perfect, we wouldn't need a Savior. We wouldn't need Jesus. But you ought to expect Christians not to be perfect. We are fallen. Yeah. But don't get hung up on what Christians do, because Christianity is not Christians. Christianity is Jesus. So keep your eyes on Jesus. For what he did, because just because we don't play him well doesn't mean Christianity's false. Just because I'm not true and beautiful doesn't mean Jesus isn't true and beautiful. Yep. Jesus is. I think that's one of the biggest mistakes that people do, or Christians in general, like they look to other Christians instead of looking at God or the Gospels. It's like exactly. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, yeah. yeah, a lot of the times when I have uh, discussions with atheists and stuff about theology and religion and all that, they say. Um, that the reason why they don't want to become a Christian a lot of the time is because they've seen what other Christians are like and they don't want to kind of fall into that habit and category and things like that. And I kind of, I tell them, I said, yeah, well, it's it's a basic fact that every single Christian out there is a hypocrite because our standard is perfection and we can't ever reach that standard. And so, yes, it is true that people fail within our religion and it happens every single day to almost every single one of us, if not everybody and so just because people mess up, that's the reason why we have Jesus Christ is because he saves us from our mess ups. He saves us from the problems that we have in front of God, who's the judge. That's cool. Yeah, because that's right. In fact, you might also add when you say him that when you tell him that and that was good, Luke, that's what you ought to tell him. You ought to say, do you live up to your own standards? Yeah. Oh, you're Wolfgang. Yeah, I'm Wolfgang. <laughs> oh, okay. You got it back. Because I see Luke is right under your name there. I'm right under oh, your... Oh, yeah, that would... That's why I see that. Okay. okay. Um, no, I was going to say, Wolfgang, that um, you might ask the, uh, the person, well, what are your standards? Do you live up to them? Mm-hmm. They don't even live up to their own standards. None of us live up to our standards, whether they're our standards or God's, right? Mm-hmm. So whether or not uh, people live up to their standards isn't the issue. None of us do. It's not, it's not just a Christian thing that Christians are hypocrites. We're all hypocrites. None of us live perfectly. That's true. So that's why we got to keep our eyes on Jesus because Jesus is actually uh, what Christianity is all about, not what Christians say and do. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. Uh, you want to ask the next question? Or? All right. The next question is, um, and I'm sure there's you kind of answered this in the last time we talked, but it says, when did you start to fall in love with Jesus? Well, I always believed that God existed growing up, but I never knew who Jesus was. And so it wasn't until I was in the Navy and ran into the son of a Methodist minister, and I had so many questions for him. And he told me to get Josh McDowell books, Evidence to Man's Verdict, More Than a Carpenter, did I realize Christianity was true. And it was at that point when I started to study and realize who Jesus was, that's when I became a Christian. Now, men don't don't respond well when did you fall in love with jesus okay that's just kind of an odd way to say things <laughs> yeah. right yeah. okay yes of course i love jesus but it sounds like romantic love when you say it that way right mm-hmm. um i think if you read the gospel of john and you realize who jesus really is 
and you compare him to anybody else in the world, it's hard not to, for lack of a better term, love Jesus, um, mm-hmm. to be enthralled with Jesus, to understand, as Peter says, actually, in John chapter six, when Jesus says, you're going to leave too? And Peter says, well, Lord, you have the keys to eternal life. Where else are we going to go? Right? Yep. There's nobody else. There's no other option out there. When you look at all the other options, um, not only is Jesus really God and proved to be God, but just aesthetically, just look at Jesus as a person. There's, there's nobody that compares to him. In fact, that's what we talk about a little bit in our new book. I don't know if you guys have seen the new book. Here it is. Hollywood Heroes, How Your Favorite Movies Reveal God. This one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you guys so seen this? Last time yeah, I wrote this with my story. son, and we point out that how all of these superhero movies that we all love, like Captain America, Iron Man, Harry Potter, uh, Star Wars, Lord of the Rings, Batman, Wonder Woman, Superman, they all point to the ultimate hero, Jesus of Nazareth. And while these heroes are have a lot of great qualities, they pale in comparison to the ultimate hero, Jesus. Mm-hmm. So that's awesome. The last chapter in Hollywood Heroes is the chapter of the ultimate hero, Jesus. And when you compare him to even some of these superhero characters that we all love on the big screen, we go, wow, Jesus is unique. He's above them all. That's awesome. Uh, if you don't mind me asking, how, how old is your son? 34. Okay. And you, and he's gone through seminary as well. I think you said that. In the last he episode. has. Yeah. Even though he's in the air force, uh, okay. he's a major in the air force, but yeah, he's already graduated. He went to seminary, the one I did, but he went to it online because that's what you can do now. Yeah. So you can do is there, it completely online, Southern Evangelical Seminary. Is there anything, anything theologically, just curious, that you guys disagree on or are you guys pretty on the same page? No, no, <laughs> we don't. No, we're, we're pretty much lined up. And look, theologically, you're, you all agree on the essentials. Yeah. You know, you might have differences in the non-essentials, but that's okay. That's awesome. All right, so this this is a more a little bit longer, deeper question. Um, this is from oh, Madison yeah. McCracken. I've been struggling with something, <clears throat> and I'm not sure how to deal with it. Just wondering if you guys could help me out with this question. Why do I not feel guilty about doing bad things? Like I know that it's wrong, but I still do it anyways, and I feel as I have no reason to stop. I used to feel so much shame when I did something bad, but now I don't know why it feels good to do all this bad stuff. Hmm. Yeah, that sounds, that's more of a psychological question than yeah. a theological question. It does kind of remind um, me of Romans 8, 5 through 11, where um, Paul is talking about, like, he wants to sit, like, he doesn't want to sin, but he still kind of does it. Um, so I feel like that's yeah. a good reference for her to go read. Also, Romans 1, which says that God gives us up to our desires. Maybe that could be the answer to that question, or at least partially. Yeah, I think you're right. Wolfgang, because it leads you to uh, a, a depraved mind to the point that you're cheering on other people doing evil. But it doesn't seem like the writer or the questioner here is at that point yeah. because intellectually he still knows it's wrong. Mm-hmm. And so it appears like he wants to get out of that. So his conscience is still working. Otherwise, <laughs> he wouldn't even be worried about it. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I he think would, it's a he, would, he would say, hey, what I'm doing is fine. There's nothing wrong with what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so. Why is this happening? It might be because the more you do a sin, the, the easier it is to continue doing it, mm-hmm. right? It's a slippery slope. And Paul talks about that in Romans 1, that he gives us up to our own desires and turns us over to a futile mind and ultimately a mind that is 
could be what what is described as depraved, where you are cheering on other people who are doing evil. Mm -hmm. So I would be worried about that, but it seems like he already is, right? He's already worried that maybe his conscience is is being seared a little bit. And so what he needs to do is uh, get some accountability, get back into the scriptures, pray, um, and, and meditate on the scriptures, and get, as I say, some accountability with some other people. Uh, before he completely goes over the edge and doesn't want to ever turn back. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's a that's a good question, though. And, I, and it's a question that, as I say, indicates that he hasn't gone. He's not completely gone. He's yeah. He wants to turn yeah. around. And I feel like it almost implies he does still feel bad for doing it because he's mm-hmm. asking the question. So, yeah. Um, ne- next question is, uh, how do you fast? <laughs> so how do you what? Fast. It's a pretty broad question fast yeah like not eat yeah well you can fast from different things i guess but i guess there's yeah there's a pretty simple answer to that but i guess you could go more in depth on like do, do you well, do you ever fast personally well i had to when i was in the military <laughs> <laughs> because yeah sometimes i'll miss a meal or something but i'm yeah. not good when i fast man because <laughs> i have a high metabolism like i just i get i get ornery <laughs> Yeah. You know, uh, but if you're going to fast, you probably want to fast in a situation where you don't have to perform. In other words, where you don't have to do a lot of thinking or physical exercise. Mm-hmm. You can just relax. You can rest and then concentrate on praying or concentrate on meditating on the scriptures. And even that's going to take a lot of mental energy. So when you fast, you're going to be in a weakened state. But the reason you're fasting is because when you're hungry and tired, you're reminded you're hungry and tired and that can remind you to pray and seek God. So that's the benefit of fasting. Yeah. Yeah. I I think the whole point of fasting is you have to get you into that state where you kind of get rid of some of those distractions. So you don't necessarily even have to fast from food. You can fast from your phone. I think that's a big one that might even be more helpful than fasting from food, especially with our younger generation. Um, Cause I think we, Oh yeah. If you can fast from your phone, I think there's an app for that. (laughs) Oh really? It just locks your phone. Yeah. Yeah, That's cool. That's cool. And, and, an app, fast app. Fast app. <laughs> um, John, you want to read question number five? Sure. <clears throat> God can turn what is meant for evil to good. How can you apply that to school shootings and, you know, et cetera? Uh, re- read the first part of that again. <clears throat> God can turn evil to God good. Can, is that what yeah. you said? God can turn what is meant for evil for good. And so yeah, how does God do that? They're asking like how, how that I guess they're trying to, to see shootings. the good in like school shootings and, you know, other like tragedies like that. Yeah, we might not be able to see any good coming from it, but that's because we're stuck in time. God is outside of time and can see the end from the beginning. And there's something and we talk about this a lot in the book, Stealing from God. And even in the new book, Hollywood Heroes, that there's a ripple effect that every event, whether it's good or bad, happens and then ripples forward into the future to affect trillions of other events and often millions or billions of people. So why does a school shooting? Well, we know why school shootings occur because people have free will, right? They can use their free will to do good or do evil. And God gave us free will in order to love. The problem is we can also use our free will to do evil. And when people choose to do evil with it, you get school shootings, you get murders, you get rapes, you get thefts, you get just garden variety everyday sins. 
but they can all ripple forward. Mm-hmm. And maybe a school shooting today ripples forward to uh, cause through the ripple effect uh, trillions of other events. And one of the events is it brings forth the great evangelist 500 years from now who saves millions of people. And you've talked about Can this we, too. Like when, when Jesus died on the cross, that was a terrible thing. Well, look at the ripple effect of that. I mean, if that didn't Yeah, that's happen. the greatest ripple effect <laughs> of all time. Yeah. That's right. You know, uh, and, and this is probably, and I would suspect no comfort to people grieving right now. This isn't meant to be a pastoral answer. This is meant to be a philosophical answer. Mm-hmm. You know, I wouldn't say this to somebody who just lost their son in a school shooting. Oh, look at the ripple effect. It can bring good later. No, that's not going to yeah. help them at that point. But from a philosophical perspective, the question is, how can a good come from this kind of evil? It's easy. It's through the ripple effect. That's how it happens. And so God can bring good even from our worst evil. And he actually promises to bring good. He said, we know that all things work together for good to those that love God and are called according to his purpose. Notice it doesn't say all things are good. It says all things work together for good. There's a lot of evil out there, Mm -hmm. but it can work together for good. And it ultimately, that passage goes on to say that this evil can conform us to the image of God's son, that through difficulty, we can become more and more like Jesus. Mm-hmm. And so God can always bring good from evil, even though we can't see the outcome. Yeah. That's because we're inside of time and God is outside of time. He can see the outcome. Mm-hmm. So the next question, I think it's definitely obviously a sin, but I think it's one that even I struggle with and a lot of other Christians um do and maybe don't even think about is, um, is cursing considered a sin? Um, so I'd love to hear your thoughts on well, that. Well, it, it, it is if you're cursing at somebody else because they're made in the image of God. But mm-hmm. if I hit my thumb with a hammer, ouch, doesn't do it for me. <laughs> <You know? laughs> that's, <laughs> that's stress relief, right? Yeah. Ah! You, know, <laughs> you, you want to say something else. But yeah, if you're cursing somebody else out, you're cursing the image of God. Mm-hmm. And Paul says, let no unwholesome talk come out of your mouth. Yep. Uh, so, yeah, if you're cursing somebody else, that's a sin. If you hit your thumb with a hammer, <laughs> you know, and you you let something go, um, okay, maybe not. Yeah. But certainly, if you're going to curse somebody else out, it is. Well, and then if you're using the Lord's name in vain as well, even if you eat thumb, I guess that's not great either. But mm-hmm. um, how as Christians can we stand up for what? we believe when it requires confrontation. Yeah. Well, uh, I think we always have to stand for the truth, but how we stand for the truth is truth is important. You can still be gracious in standing for the truth. You don't have to be obnoxious standing for the truth. Mm-hmm. Right. And so Jesus was a hundred percent truth and a hundred percent grace. Although I will say a lot of times Jesus was pretty stern, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, he called people, hypocrites. He called the Pharisees whitewashed sepulchers. I mean, he went after people. He said, your, your father is the devil. You know what I mean? Yeah. He didn't, mm-hmm. he, he sometimes was very direct. And yeah. so we can also be very direct, but most of the time when we're trying to stand for the truth, we have to do it in a very gracious way. And so, I mean, like, suppose someone's doing something that you know is wrong. God doesn't want them to do it. It's some sexual sin. That's the big one in our culture today. And you want to you wanna try and help them. You might come up to them and say, hey, um, if I was about to do something that you know would hurt me, would you love me enough to tell me? Mm-hmm. 
they're going to probably have to say, well, of course. Okay, well, I'd like to do that right now mm-hmm. because I think the road you're going down is going to hurt you. It's going to hurt others, and it's against God's will. So I want you to know that, right? I, th- I think the uh... you're looking out for them. You're not. You're not just trying to be the moral police. You're trying to give them the truth so you can try and save them from the consequences of what they're doing. What were you going to say, Wolfgang? I said, I think that the uh, not being obnoxious part is a good place to start at the very least. I was in uh, Asheville last week, Asheville, North Carolina, and it was, it's a pretty liberal town. I'd say more atheist than, than Christians. It is. I'll be there in a couple days. That's yeah. where my son lives. Yeah. Awesome. Um, but so I, I was there and this is the point where Roe v. Wade got overturned. Um, and of course I just went to go out, grab like, uh, we, we did a food tour before, so I wanted to grab a drink that we had on the food tour. Me and my girlfriend, it was a really good drink. <laughs> but um, anyway, all these people were crowding in the streets with their protest signs and things like that. And in the corner, there was just like on on top of, it wasn't like a statue, but it was kind of like a step. Um, there was 10, 10 dudes and like five girls who were standing there with just a bunch of like Jesus saves signs and things like that. And he was like, he or what's it called? We walked by and we heard one of the guys like, "We're standing here. We're gonna be bold, but we're not the minority, or we're the minor minority here. Although, um, but we're still gonna push through this all." And my girlfriend just yells out, "You're not the minority. We're gonna win this together." And in what in some cases we already have won. Um, definitely, I think that the overturning of Roe v. Wade shows that we won, and all these protests are just people that are mad that they haven't. Um, but. I think it kind of just goes to show that if you are more civil about it, I mean, these people were yelling and cussing and all this stuff, and it it never, if I was in the middle and I had to choose a side, looking at the people who were screaming and yelling and cussing out because they're upset, and then the other people who are just simply there, like, talking about their beliefs and are content with the things that they've gotten, I kind of look at those people and I'd agree with them more. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it is important to have the right demeanor. Of course, the right demeanor doesn't guarantee you have the right argument, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> yeah. It could be that the people who are all ornery and cussing are right. Now, in this case, they're not. Mm-hmm. But it does help your case to be more winsome and less confrontational uh, in order to support your case. But why, by the way, why were you in Asheville? What were you doing there? Um, we were just doing a family trip. We went to Nashville and then went over to Asheville. It was kind of just a family trip. So you went to the Biltmore and all that? Yeah. Yeah. It was a lot of fun. Yeah. And yeah, I just, okay, good. All this reminds me of Matthew ten sixteen. Um, it says, listen carefully. I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. So I think that, kind yeah, of yeah in fact, he's, he, he also says in, uh, I want to say Matthew seven, right after he, you know, judge not lest you be judged passage. He says, don't throw your pearls to swine Yeah. (laughs) or they're going to, they may trample you to death. So there are people out there that you don't even want to give an answer to because they're not listening, right? They don't want to listen. They just want to have an excuse to trample you to death. So you have to be careful uh, how you stand for the truth and to whom you stand for the truth. Mm -hmm. So this next question, um, do you believe Acts 2.38 is the way to salvation? Um, so maybe we should pull up that verse to kind of see more of what he's getting at here. Matthew. That's where it says, um, repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the forgiveness of sins, 
Yeah. Um, um, yeah. That's Peter talking to the people at Pentecost who crucified Jesus. Mm-hmm. And there are some people out there who try and say, look, Peter's saying that you have to be baptized in order to be saved, but he's not saying that. Mm-hmm. Baptism just immediately followed your conversion. And uh, elsewhere, where Peter is preaching in the book of Acts and other people are preaching in the book of Acts, they, they don't connect becoming a Christian in baptism necessarily. Mm-hmm. Although we should get baptized because it's an outward sign of an inward change. But baptism isn't necessary for salvation. You say, well, how do you know? Well, I think the easiest way of pointing this out is if you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and Romans chapter 1, side by side. 1 Corinthians, Paul says, uh, because people are you know, claiming to follow different apostles rather than Jesus, and he's saying, look, just, just follow Jesus. Don't follow Paul. You weren't baptized in Paul. You weren't baptized in Apollos. You know, you're baptized in Jesus. Mm-hmm. And he says, look, I don't even remember who I baptized, except for a couple of people. He said, I came to preach the gospel. Mm-hmm. And then if you go to Romans 1, in Romans 1, 16 and 17, it says that the gospel saves. So if Paul came to preach the gospel and the gospel saves, and baptism isn't part of the gospel, then baptism isn't part of salvation. Yep. It's just a sign of salvation, mm-hmm. but it's not necessary for salvation. So when, when Jesus when Jesus got baptized by John the Baptist, um, it says like the dove came down. I think the dove just meaning the Holy Spirit in a sense. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. So it's obviously an outward appearance, like yeah, like you said, to show people where you stand. Um, but then you think there's also an added on like, uh, maybe an upgrade of the Holy Spirit or something? Or like, what do you think that kind of means when the Spirit kind of came down on Jesus when he was baptized? Yeah, I think it was just showing that, that uh, by the way, you've got, you've got all members of the Trinity in one scene there. You've got the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove. Uh, I think it's just demonstrating what happened. It's demonstrating that visually people could see that Jesus was uh, baptized by the Holy Spirit, that he, the Holy Spirit was there in their presence. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there's a lot of things in the Bible that are just descriptive. They're not prescriptive, right? Like yeah. much of the book is a book of acts is descriptive. It's just describing what happened. It's just describing what Peter said to those people who did crucify Jesus. Does that mean it's prescriptive for the rest of us? Not necessarily. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, the Bible says that uh, David committed adultery with Bathsheba. That's a description. It's not a prescription. Yeah. Like we're not supposed to do that. Right. And so you always have to be careful when you're reading to try and discover, is this a description or a prescription? There's a lot of description. In fact, most of the Bible is descriptive. That's actually, a story. That leads, telling you what happened. Right? That leads perfectly to the next question, which is someone mm-hmm. asking about Judges 19, which is essentially yeah. when um, a man and his wife go visit the wife's father, the, the concubine. I don't know which one of those it really is, but uh, maybe a mix between the two. Um, and you know, the dad's saying that they should stay and drink over and over for a few days. And then they finally leave and they get to a town and then kind of like almost in the Sodom and Gomorrah story, like the people ask for, for her to come out and they throw her out and she gets essentially, you know, raped a lot. (laughs) And then she's back on the doorstep. He cuts her up and sends her out. And then further on, um, there's like that meeting where they're talking about it and he's telling everybody that it was like, he doesn't really tell people that he threw her out. It's like, they 
were threatening to kill me and all this stuff. So I I, I want to get your thoughts on that because I think, yeah, a lot of people like read stuff like that and they're like, oh, well, then that must be okay because it's in the Bible. But like you just said, it's just descriptive and it's not really talking about this is what you should do. Um, yeah, the book of Judges <laughs> is notorious for this kind of thing. In fact, as you know, the book of Judges, that's the period from, just so people know, from when the people got in the land in about 1400 B.C., all the way up to about, say, 1050 BC. So for about 350 years, they were tribal people in Israel, in what we now know as Israel, in that area. And they didn't have a king. They didn't have one leader. They had these tribal leaders. And it got to the point where so much evil was done that it says in the last verse of the book of Judges or the very last section of the book of Judges, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Mm -hmm. In other words, it was anarchy. People were doing a lot of evil and whatever they decided was right was right for them. And uh, this is another one of those events where you've got obviously an evil thing being done, but it's just describing what has been done. It is not prescribing it for the rest of us. And so the Bible is rated R. You yeah. read the Bible, you're going to you're going to read a lot of crazy stuff in there. By the way, that's one reason I that's one piece of evidence that suggests it's true. Because mm -hmm. if you're the, if you're the Israeli people, if you're the Israelites, do you want to air out all your dirty laundry? Do you want to talk about how evil you've been and how unfaithful you've been and how many sins and crimes you've committed? No, you probably have the tendency to sanitize all that stuff, right? Yeah. You don't want to write things that are going to embarrass you, but they do. That's why these are not made up. And when we get to the New Testament, we see that even more. There's so many embarrassing things that the disciples do that they never would have invented. Mm -hmm. You're more apt to invent things that make you look good, not invent things that make you look bad. Like, you know, the disciples run away at the crucifixion. The women are the brave ones while the disciples run away. You know, Peter denies Christ three times. Peter's called Satan by Jesus. Jesus is called a drunkard, demon-possessed. You know, all of these embarrassing things they never would have invented are indications to me and other, other people that look at this. They go, particularly historians, when they see something embarrassing to the author or authors, they go, hey, that's probably true. They wouldn't make that up. Yeah. That's so the, 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 the Bible tells the truth regardless of the consequences of the people writing it. Mm -hmm. So um, this person's asking about in Acts, there's a story when a sheet comes down from heaven with animals on it. Um, and I guess just some clarification on what's going on there. <laughs> yeah, that has to do with the fact that Jesus is telling Peter, I believe, that everything is now clean to eat. Because in the Old Testament, they had these dietary laws in order to separate themselves from the surrounding culture. God said, only wear these kind of clothes, only eat these kind of food. These were temporary laws to demonstrate that they needed to be set apart from their other, the other tribes around them, the other people around them. But when we get to the New Testament, Jesus uh, uh, puts those laws to Israel aside because those laws were just for Israel. And he says it there in the book of Acts, but it, it also happens, I think, in Mark chapter 7, where Jesus says, it's not what goes into a man that makes him unclean, it's what comes out of a man that makes him unclean. Theft, sexual immorality, adult, you know, all these evils that he talks about. 
Um, so this is just Jesus doing away with the dietary laws and enabling Christians, I should say, well, Jews at the time who became Christians and non-Jews, Gentiles, to now fellowship together because in the past they wouldn't do that. That's awesome. And that's why, by the way, Paul has to dope slap Peter in Galatians chapter 2 because although Jesus told him to eat all things and to fellowship with other people, Peter began to separate himself from the Gentiles because there was a group of teachers who came in behind Paul in the area that we now know as Southern Turkey. That's the Galatian area. And these Judaizers were saying, yeah, okay, you got to believe in Jesus, but you also have to believe in all the Old Testament laws. Yeah. And so Peter was influenced by these people and he started to do that. And Paul came in and said, no, you're free now. That's what the whole book of Galatians is about. You're free from all these laws. You don't have to do this anymore. So here's an instance where one apostle is correcting another apostle in the Bible. Now, that's embarrassing, right? <laughs> I mean, why would they make that up, that Paul has to dope slap Peter? Yeah. Right? They're not making it up. They're just telling the truth. This is what happened. Peter actually began to separate himself from the Gentiles, and Paul would have none of it. Mm -hmm. Spe speaking of the disciples, I was I don't know what I was listening to, but people were talking about that the disciples, like back in that time, mostly everyone was illiterate. Um, and especially in, because they wrote it in like a different language, I think, than what they spoke normally. But maybe I'm mistaken. But what what would you say to those people that say like, oh, the disciples were illiterate. It, was it would be impossible for them to write, you know, the Gospels essentially. Well, we don't know. Well, we do know that they weren't illiterate because we have these books. <laughs> so <laughs> they did write it down. Now, people did have scribes. Yeah. So Paul writes some of his own. Um, in fact, he even says in one of his books, I write this with my own hand. But in other books, like the book of Romans, he, he dictated that to Tertius or somebody who wrote it down. Mm -hmm. So people had scribes. Mark was probably the scribe for Peter. That's why you get the, the gospel of Mark. It's really... He's relying, most scholars think, on Peter's memory to write the Gospel of Mark, but Mark is writing it down. Luke, of course, was a doctor. Luke was a brilliant guy. He's an historian of first rank, as many other historians have said. And so he wrote the Gospel of Luke and the, Gospel, and, and the Book of Acts, as you know. And uh, John, uh, either, either he had a scribe or he could write himself. So there's Obviously, he could write himself. Many he? people could write. He wrote, What's that? He, he, he could write himself because on the island of Patmos, he wrote the Revelations. Yeah, he wrote Revelation. He could have dictated it, but he probably did write it. Yeah. But you, yeah, there's no, there's no problem with dictating stuff. If somebody else could write it, you could just dictate it to him. Yeah, I dictate so, stuff to my phone all the time. So <laughs> yeah, there you go. They didn't have Siri back then, but <laughs> they had people that could write it down. That's awesome. So it's um that's not a problem at all. Yeah. And nobody knows what the exact percentage was of people that were literate and not literate. But what we do know is that there are a lot of creeds in the New Testament. These are short, pithy sayings that were sayings or hymns that were later written into the text, like 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 to 8. That's the earliest evidence for the resurrection in the entire New Testament, the entire Bible. And it was a creed. It was something memorized orally. It had a rhythm to it. And so people could memorize what happened to Jesus and who he appeared to. That's what 1 Corinthians 3 to 8 is all about. Now, Gary Habermas, the Liberty University, has identified about 40 creeds, 41 creeds in the New Testament. Most of them you can find in this book, The Historical Jesus. 
And uh, Gary is writing his magnum opus right now. He teaches at Liberty University and he's writing it on the resurrection. And the book is like over 5,000 pages. Wow. Just on the resurrection. That's great. And it's going to be in like four or five volumes. So he's, he's a machine. He's pumping that out right now. Is it mostly just kind of like historical facts and stuff kind of proving the resurrection? Okay. Yep. Cool. That's his role. And he's looking at what everybody in, in, uh, every prominent new Testament scholar has said about the resurrection and other evidence he's gathered. And mm-hmm. he's responding to people who come up with alternative theories. And I mean, he's just doing all of the scholarly work necessary to have what he considers his magnum opus on the topic that he's devoted his life to. And that's the resurrection. Yeah. Well, pretty important topic for sure. Kind of everything. Yeah. I think on so. That. Pretty important. <laughs> if that's true. Christianity's true. Yeah. So that's awesome. Wolfgang and John, do you have any other questions? Um, I kind of had one about uh, holy ground because they talked a lot in the Old Testament, like take off your shoes, this is holy ground and whatnot. And then I believe Hebrews ten nineteen, they start talking about how we can now enter the holy ground through the blood of Jesus and whatnot. And I kind of just, do you, I'm not 100% sure, but why did they really do away with holy ground or it, did they do away with it at all? Do we still have holy ground today? Yeah, that's a good question. I don't know the answer to that. Um, It might be because, as you know, in the Old Testament, uh, God dwelt in the temple, so to speak, in a spiritual way. Uh And that was holy ground. But now God dwells at least relationally in his believers. So there is no temple. We're all the temples now. That's what I was going to say, too. We're all holy ground, if you will. Uh Okay. So there's there's no place to go. Like, I I know pastors will say, well, we're in the house of the Lord, you know? Well, not really. Um, <laughs> it is a house built to, to where people come to worship the Lord, mm-hmm. but it's not like it was the temple of Jerusalem. Uh, mm-hmm. God now indwells us through his Holy Spirit, not physically, you know, if they cut you open, they wouldn't find the Holy Spirit in there, but relationally, that, the, that you are now relationally indwelt with the Holy Spirit. And so you are now holy ground. Everyone's holy ground who's a believer. Yeah. I think the big moment when that kind of happened was, yeah, when Jesus died on the cross, the curtain ripped in the temple. And so kind of right. it kind of changed from just the, you know, um, I guess Levites essentially to go in there. It kind of it opened up to everybody. Um, so pretty amazing. That's right. Yeah, it's the, the the veil between God and man is now torn in two because Jesus has taken the sin of ourselves upon himself. So there's no condemnation mm-hmm. between mm-hmm. or for what we've done because Jesus has taken it upon himself. That's okay. awesome. Is that all the time we have here? Or? Well, I got one thing to end us off on, but Jordan, if you have any questions. Um, yeah. <clears throat> Jeez. Uh, so my question to you kind of was like, is there a question like that you like really wrestle with? Like, this, is there a question that you're like not really satisfied with the answer that everyone like kind of like universally unites around or like, is, is well, there- I think, um, look, there are three major questions that people or three major objections that people have to the existence of God. One is evil, right? If there is a good God, why is there evil? And as you all know, that doesn't disprove God because there would be no such thing as evil unless good existed and there'd be no such thing as good unless God existed. So it doesn't disprove God, but it still causes people to emotionally go, well, you know, why, why did you allow this evil or that evil or you know that kind of thing? Okay, so that's one. 
The other that is prevalent today, although it's fading a little bit, is this idea of evolution. You know, people think, well, if evolution is true, you don't need God. Of course, that's not true because evolution, even if it's true, only explains where subsequent life forms come from. It didn't explain where the universe came from, doesn't explain where the fine tuning of the universe came from or where the first life came from or where moral uh, objective moral values come from, or it doesn't explain any of those things. Right. Mm -hmm. But evolution has caused some people to go, Oh, maybe, maybe, maybe Genesis is wrong, you know? And then the third big question, and it's kind of related to the evil question, I think. And that is why is God hidden, right? The hiddenness of God, you know, why didn't God just show up and say, well, here I am, you know, I believe in me. Now, there are answers to that, but that's the one I want to investigate more, yeah. uh, the hiddenness of God, because I, I think one of the answers to it, of course, is the fact that God isn't just interested in us knowing he exists. He wants to have a relationship with us, and that requires some distance, because, mm -hmm. look, even the demons know that God exists, right? They know better than we do, but they don't trust in him. There's a difference between believing that God exists and trusting in him. Mm -hmm. So... That the hiddenness of God is one I want to do more research on. I have done some, but I want to do more research on that one. That'd be a good book for How sure. How about you guys? <laughs> what are the issues for you? I would really actually agree on the hiddenness of God. Like, why is it when I pray, why can't it just be a loud, booming voice that responds? Or why is it when I pray mm -hmm. for somebody, why does it take so long? Or why does it not happen that they're healed? And like all, like all that kind of stuff is like, yeah, just if if I believe in you, just make it obvious. But I think, I think he does, but it's just... We, we can look around us, we see all cre creation, we see how amazing it is and how amazing we are and how we think and all that, and that we, we, we know God exists in our head, but yeah, just like, I guess I guess it relies back on our faith um, and like you were saying in that relationship, but I, I'd have to agree on, yeah, that's something I struggle with for sure. <clears throat> I'd say my biggest well, the, question, the, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to say the reason, just, just to, because you made me think of something else, and that is, if someone ever asks you, how do you know God exists? I think what you ought to say is, I know God by his effects. Mm -hmm. So, for example, creation is an effect. So you're reasoning back to a cause, a creator. Design is an effect. So you're reasoning back to a cause, a designer. The moral law written on your heart is an effect. You reason back to a cause, a moral lawgiver. The ability to reason is an effect. So you're reasoning back to a cause, a mind. You're always reasoning from effect to cause. Even if you have a, a personal experience, that's an effect that you're reasoning back to a cause and you're saying the cause is God, right? Jesus's resurrection. Why did all those people think he rose from the dead? That's the effect. The cause is God rose him from the dead. Mm -hmm. So you're reasoning from effect to cause. And when you look at so many effects that are around us, you know, the cause has to be someone like God. Even if there's one aspect you might not be able to figure out, that doesn't negate all the other aspects you have figured out, right? Yeah, that oh, I've got all this other evidence for God, but this evidence over here, I don't have enough of or it's it's puzzling me. OK, well, that doesn't negate all the other evidence, all the other effects that you see that clearly point to a spaceless, timeless, immaterial, powerful, personal, intelligent creator. Mm -hmm. OK, sorry. Go ahead, Wolfgang. That's OK. Um, so my biggest question is probably why would God choose to create a complex like ecosystem with complete with life forms and and the universe and within itself why not just all let it be or, or why well, i was just confused as to why we exist at all why was it a choice that he mm -hmm. made yeah we don't have to exist he doesn't need us to exist mm -hmm. the only answer is it says 
uh, God created us for his glory, but what, do you, what does even that mean, mm-hmm. right? Um, uh, you, you, I guess one way to put it is since God is love and he creates beings he can love, mm-hmm. beings made in his image, meaning that we have mind, emotion, and will, and we can make choices, we can have a love relationship, that that's what a loving being would do. He would create other creatures that he could love, not just himself and the Trinity. So that's yeah. about the best answer you can give. I guess we'll find out one day. Yeah. My yeah. doubts are kind of like scattered all across the board, like almost in all fields, there's at least a tinge of, you know, doubt there. Um, definitely the hiddenness of God as well. It's like, why can't, you know, he be like, talk to me like he did Samuel. I mean, I'd probably, you know, crap myself if he actually, you know, spoke in a loud boom <laughs> That's voice. Right. But um, sometimes <laughs> I wish it was like more of like an, an, an actual companion that you could, you know, talk to and stuff. And then um, the other one would be like, and, and you've already answered it, but it's like the evil question still it's it's just like bothers me it's like and going like back to like the school shootings and stuff it's like why like and there's the answer to it but it's like it just still doesn't you know it, it still eats at me it's like these like 10 year old little kids in an elementary school and like the like days before one of the victims made a tiktok video proclaiming on how like jesus loved everyone and how good he was and it just it just doesn't make yeah yeah, well, if there is no God, there was nothing wrong with shooting all those kids. See, that's the problem. Yeah, uh, we we're we're making the assumption that those lives were valuable, but they're only valuable if God exists. Mm-hmm. They're not valuable if He doesn't. Mm-hmm. So, it is. On one hand, we go, God, why would you allow this to happen? On the other hand, when we ask that question, God, why would you allow this to happen? We're assuming the the, the theistic worldview is true. Yeah, because. Those lives are only valuable if God exists. Otherwise, we're just molecular machines. We're just moist robots. There's no purpose to life. We're just going to die and become worm food. What does it matter if it happens now or 70 years from now? Yeah, there's no morality if God doesn't exist. It doesn't matter at all. Yeah, that kind of springs up like one last question in my mind as well is um, the Israelites, like there was the older group that had to continue wandering the desert and died. And then the younger generation came up with Joshua and Caleb and they were able to go in like, where do you think the age cutoff is, is if you like die at like a certain age or something, but you're just like not mature enough in the mind to like really understand all that stuff. Is there like a physical mean like what's the age of accountability? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. That's, I think it probably depends on what generation you grew up in and what the surrounding cultures like, you know, back then it may have been seven or eight years old because when you living out in the wilderness, you had to gain responsibility really quickly, right? You, you know, you didn't have a lot of leisure time. You had to, <laughs> you had to grow food or hunt food in order to live. You know, today, you know, the age of accountability for girls is probably like ten. For guys, it's probably about forty, <laughs> 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 because we don't mature as fast as the girls do, and we don't have to, right? Just, and we live a cushy life here in America. Yeah, mm-hmm. we can delay becoming a real man. Um, because of the circumstances we're in. So I think age of accountability probably varies with the culture in which the person is brought up. And I think too, when God's judging us, he's not going to look at our age and be like, well, this is the age. He knows our hearts and he knows everything about us. So he'll probably look at that. That's right. (laughs) Um, Well, I think that kind of wraps, wraps, wraps it up. Um, Frank, thanks so much for joining us as, as an honor and absolutely will, will now make... tell me what you guys are doing now are you done with high school you're in college now what are you doing yeah i'm going off to college 
soon here. Where? I'm going to University of Southern Florida. Southern Florida? Yeah. So, You're going like about as far from Aspen as you can go. <laughs> man. I'm going back home, back where I came from. I lived the first 14 years of my life in Tampa Bay, so I, uh, I'm just heading back there. So where is Southern Florida University? Uh, it's in Tampa. All right. Well, when you get there, make sure you join a Christian group and then call us and we'll come do a, I don't have enough faith to be an atheist presentation there. All right. Perfect. I'll be sure to do that. You just got to be part of a Christian group to invite us on campus. Okay. <laughs> Sounds good. Um, That'd be awesome. That's what, where, where, where are you guys going? Uh, I'm, I'm grad. I graduated last year. I'm 19 and I, I run my own business here in the Valley. I just do a lot of photography and videography stuff. So no plans to oh, go off good. to college, um, but hoping to do a lot of documentaries on like, you know, just showing people's stories and hopefully bring them closer to Jesus and truth. Um, so that's kind good. Of well, goal. don't go to college. It'll mess you up. Be careful. There, <laughs> yeah. Wolfgang. Be, careful. Right. <laughs> be sure to do that. Yeah. So I have no idea. That's in God's hands right now. I have absolutely zero clue. What's Are you graduated on. already? Um, I have, a, I have enough credits to, but oh, yeah, I has. have like no idea what I want to do with my life. I don't really want to go to college cause I, there's nothing that I like particularly uh -huh. want to study there. So I wouldn't want to waste money or time going there anyway. Yeah. So, good. Yeah. It's just kind of up in the air right now. That's right. Sometimes when you're 50 or 60, you don't know what you want to do with your life. It's okay. <laughs> yeah. Just do something. <laughs> do it all to the glory of God, whatever you do. Yeah. What about you, Frank? You, you kind of just kind of keep doing what you're doing or any big plans and changes you're thinking of? Yeah, keep doing what we're doing, trying to expand the ministry, trying to uh, bring up more speakers, more people that want to do this. Mm -hmm. So... Yeah. Um, that's what we're trying to do. So if you know anyone that's interested in this and has an affinity for us, let us know. All right. In the sense of just being kind of like an apologist and speaking to people or. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you know, we do a lot online as you know, there's a whole big social media team we have. So yeah, so yeah, we do a lot of video as you know, do yeah. a lot of video. You're going to Israel. It looks day, like maybe. in September. That looks fun. What's that? You're going to Israel in September on like a big group. We are. That looks fun. If yep. anyone's going interested, Israel. in Israel. You got to go there at least up. once as a Christian. It'll open your eyes. <laughs> a pilgrimage. That's right. All right, All right guys. Awesome. Let us know when you put this up. All right. We'll do. Perfect. All right. I'll send it to you. God bless. See ya. And God we also bless. recorded the video this time, so that's good. Yeah, we have your That's hand. good. It's a good thing you did that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks so much. All right. See ya. Don't forget, Wolfgang. Okay. Join a group. Invite us. All right. I'll be sure to do that. Thank you. All right. See ya. All right. Goodbye. Well, guys, thanks so much for watching. Um, I hope you enjoyed Frank. Go check out all his stuff. He's pretty awesome. Um, invite him to your schools. But, cool. um, yeah, I hope you all have a great day. Leave us a good review on podcast if you're listening. Or a bad one if you hate us. Fortunately, this will be my last podcast that will be that I'll be on. Really? Um, yeah, because I have to pack up for college here soon. Um, I'm leaving Don't Friday. Don't you leave Friday? Yeah. yeah. Dang. And uh, I might make some surprise vid visits every now and then. But um, for the most part, yeah, I will not be a regular anymore. So you'll see me, Jonah, and Aiden. But me and Jonah are gone for a long time, too. So there might be some s scarcity in podcast episodes coming out. But it's not us falling from the faith. We're just not here. So we've got lives, people. <laughs> You guys are a big part of it. So thank you. Thank you guys all. Have a great day. Jesus is a friend of mine. Jesus is my friend. Jesus is a friend of mine. I have a friend in Jesus.